If you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 34. And if you don't have one with you, you can look along uh, on the screen. We'll have the scripture up there for you. But today we are concluding our sermon series for the summer through the book of Psalms. We've looked at several different key Psalms in the first kind of section of Psalms, you could say. And so we're going to conclude that here in just a minute. Uh, But I do want to say that I'm really excited about our next sermon series that we're going to begin next week. So next week, uh, we're going to begin a new five-part series through the month of August called Talking Points. And so the purpose of this is we want to discuss common talking points that typically come up in conversations that we may have with non-believers or with skeptics of Christianity. So the people that we work with, the people that we see and interact with on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, perhaps even some of our own family members, we want to be able as Christians to articulate the truths of Christianity and be able to engage in good and healthy dialogue with those who have sincere questions about the faith or skeptical about some part of the faith. So I'm really excited about this. This is kind of a piggyback off of our apologetic study that we that many of you participated in back in the spring on Wednesday nights. Um, so I'm excited to dive into that next week. Uh, so please be here and, and plan to be here through the month of August as we really seek to equip ourselves through God's Word to, to have good dialogue with non-believers. Uh, but today we're going to start, or finish I should say, uh, Psalm 34 and the Songs We Sing series that we're in now. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word as we open and read it today. Lord Jesus, we, we thank You. We thank You that we get to celebrate who You are today. We thank You that we got to celebrate what You've done in the life of Howie and, and what You're doing in his family, Lord. So thank You for his salvation and baptism today. God, we thank You for the church We thank you for the family of God, the body of Christ. Lord, those whom you have given us in this place today, Lord, we just thank you that we get to be here and worship together. So now would you speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit, through the power of the word of God. Would you transform the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about you, and the way that we interact with our lives in this world. Teach us in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I know with streaming services this, these days, you probably don't see many TV commercials. We, we're still old school. We, we've got satellite TV at our house, so you know, we, if we record it, we can fast forward through the commercials. But you know how it is. If you're watching a live event on TV or a sporting event, you are kind of forced to watch those commercials, aren't you? And so what are, what are TV commercials? What's the point? The point is they're all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to sell us on their product and convince us Right? They do that by convincing you that you must have this thing in order to live the good life. Right? So, for example, if you want to be creative and hip, well, then you must buy an iPhone. Right? If you want to be an athlete, then you must drink Gatorade. See, now I've tried that, though, and it doesn't work. But if you want to be beautiful, right, then you need to buy this particular makeup. Or if you need more space to hang your clothes, then you need to buy a Bowflex, right? That's exactly what that's for. (laughs) But what, 
what is it, though, that we really use as a metric to determine if we're living the good life? Well, TV commercials tell us you need these things, right, to live the good life, to be successful, to be happy with your life. But what are the real metrics that we use? Like, what is it that we really do evaluate our lives by and our standard of living by? Well, I think the obvious one is money, how much money we do have or don't have. And so we like to think about that. We like to judge ourselves and kind of evaluate ourselves and compare ourselves to others and how much money they do or don't have or appear to have. Perhaps position, maybe where you, are, where you rank in the hierarchy of your career or job or wherever you spend your time. Maybe we judge our lives and how good they are based on our accomplishments. What have we achieved? What is it that we like to bring up in conversations with people about ourselves? What do we want them to know about us? Maybe it's relationships, your success or failure in relationships. Maybe it's beauty, comfort, luxury, right? The list goes on and on. There are so many metrics that we use to measure, to evaluate if we are living the good life. So what about you? Would you say today that you're living the good life? Well, I guess it depends on how you define it, right? You see, in Psalm 34, David gives us a different metric. David gives us a different type of way of determining if we are really living the good life. In fact, he does this by completely redefining what the good life is. So whatever you thought it was, walking into here today, whatever the world has told you, whatever the TV commercials have told you, you need to have to have the good life. Let's, let's re-examine that. Let's see what David says. Psalm 34. So it's a little lengthy, but I'd like for us to read it in its entirety at one time, and then we'll break it down with some points later. So Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days and that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So what is the good life? I think there's three things we can pull right here out of Psalm 34 and redefine what the good life really is. First thing is this, the good life, number one, cannot be defined by our circumstances. We just can't define how good our lives really are based on our actual circumstances day to day. I mean, look what David says in verse one. He starts out this entire song by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. All times? Man, David has reached a high level of spiritual maturity to be able to say that, right? I mean, can we say that? To to be able to, to praise God at all times, in every kind of circumstance, everything really, literally, Let me just give you a little context so you can understand how powerful this statement is from someone like David because of what he was going through. You see, we know from 1 Samuel, we know that this psalm was written by David after he was fleeing for his life. King Saul was chasing David. He was trying to kill him. And so David was literally a man on the run. He was hiding for his life. Now, that's a pretty bad scenario, right? I mean, someone is chasing you, trying to kill you. You're constantly on the move, trying to hide. Yet this is exactly what David was going through when he wrote this song. And yet he still can say, I will praise God at all times. But think about about our lives today. I mean, is this realistic Now, I hope no one's chasing you and trying to kill you, but is this realistic? Are you going to be able to praise God at all times when the diagnosis comes? Are we going to be able to praise God at the funeral of a loved one? Are you going to be able to praise God when the relationship fails or when you lose your job? You see, I think David... I think what he's doing here is he's helping us answer these questions in a way that we may not expect. You see, David is looking back. He's looking back at his past circumstances that were not favorable, and he's learning from his past experiences. So we believe that he was actually writing this after a particular incident that had already happened. And, and this, is how, this is how we learn too, isn't it? Think about it. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So we, we look back at our past experiences, our past circumstances. And isn't it usually, not always, but typically it's often the case that that we can look back and, and learn something because we see more clearly why those particular events happened the way they did or or we can just learn some kind of lesson or principle that we made a mistake doing at first, but now we've learned. Well, David, looking back, is able to better articulate what was happening and how God was involved. You see, this is why David is praising God. Because in hindsight, when you're looking back at an event that's already happened in your life, 
Sometimes you can see, just like David here, that it was God all along that was moving him in a certain direction and shaping his heart and his thoughts and delivering him out of the scenario. So look how he describes it in verses four through seven again. This is, this is how he articulates this, again, with hindsight, right? He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who do, right? Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You see, when you're in the middle of a tragedy or you're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, you may not be able to say this or you may not feel like saying this. The Lord hears me. I know he's listening. I know he's answering me. I know he's delivering me. We may not be able to say that, but on the other side, on the other side of his tragedy, David can see clearly that the Lord was doing what only he could do. Notice in verses four through seven, the acts of power in these verses are all God's doing, right? The action is God. God is the one answering. God is the one delivering. God is the one saving. God is the one encamping around his people. But the only human response, the only human action we see in verses four through seven is a posture of humility. That's it. David is not saving. David is not delivering. David is not encamping. No, he is simply posturing himself before a sovereign God and admitting that he doesn't have all the answers. David doesn't have the answers. He isn't trying to take matters into his own hands and control every little part of the story and the situation. So look what he does. He simply seeks, verse four. He looks, verse five. He cries, verse six. He fears God, verse seven. See, that word fear, by the way, that word fear means to have a reverent awe of who God is, to live with a conscious awareness of his majesty, his sovereignty, his glory, his greatness, that's what it means to fear the Lord. It's not like you're afraid or scared, right? It's, it's this reverence, this awe of how great and majestic he is. See, I believe, I believe these verses, four through seven, are key to understanding the truly good life. David's circumstances were terrible. His circumstances are only consumed, he says, by fears, by shame, by troubles. So his situation is not good at all. Yet, in the midst of it, and through it, and at the end of it, and as he looks back, it is a posture of humility in the midst of it all that makes the difference. That's why he says in verse two, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, right? He's not trying to boast in himself to just pull himself up by his bootstraps and get through the difficult situation. No, he is boasting in the Lord, in his power. He says, who should hear this and be glad? The humble. It's the humble who can hear. It's the humble who can see. It's the humble who can be glad. It's the posture of humility, admitting that we don't have all the answers that saves us from being a slave to the feelings and emotions of our circumstances. We don't need to know all the answers. 
We need to admit that we don't have to be in control. It's this posture of humility before God that allows us to trust Him, to know that He is at work even when we can't see the evidence of it immediately. Boy, we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with wanting to be in control. I mean, how many of you in your just daily routine lives, not even necessarily a tragedy, but you just feel like you have to be in control? And so you probably go to great lengths, right, to calm any anxiety you may have to just feel like you are in control of your situations and your day-to-day circumstances. One way that we do that is by acquiring knowledge, right? So we want to have knowledge of everything and everyone and every little part of every little part of our lives so that we can feel like we can make good decisions and control every little piece. And as soon as something goes out of control, so to speak, Right? We, we wake up quickly and realize as soon as we experience a tragedy or a crisis in our lives, we really immediately see that control and all-knowing knowledge, right? it was a delusion all along. It's in the moments of tragedy, it's in the moments of crisis that we know, we know we're not in control. We know we don't have all the knowledge and it often crushes us. But see, what's the heart of that? The heart of that is pride. But David says he makes his boast in the Lord. No, we want to boast in ourselves. We don't want to admit weakness. So we want to control our circumstances to appear strong. We want to control the knowledge of our circumstances to appear wise. We don't want to admit our weakness, but here we see that it is David's weakness that is actually his strength. Now, maybe you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How could one be weak and strong at the same time? Well, the Bible tells us. It's because the Lord displays his strength in us when we are frail, when we are clueless. You see, the Apostle Paul helps us understand this a little better because the Apostle Paul went through a tragedy of his own. And guess what? He also wrote about this. He wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he, as well as David, is looking back And in hindsight, he has seen how the Lord was working in his tragedy all along to shape him into the person that he really needed to be. In verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, right? So there it is again. David's saying, no, I'm not going to be prideful and try to control every little thing in my life. No, I'm going to boast in the Lord and I'm going to trust that what he's doing matters and that what he is going to do in my heart through this is going to be fruitful. And so Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now we're not exactly sure what he's referring to here, but it was bad. Verse eight, three times, three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast. Here's the boasting. Again, it's not in himself. All the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Content with what? He is content with his circumstances. He's not saying that he enjoys tragedy. He's not telling us that we should ask for bad things to happen to us. Absolutely not. 
tragedy and crisis and difficulties are a part and a result of the fall of mankind. The the sinful curse on this world that we brought on ourselves. We don't rejoice in the actual dilemma. We rejoice in the greatness of Jesus and what he does through it. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, don't you want to be able to say that? That when you are weak, it is actually your strongest point if you're resting in the Lord, if you're boasting in his greatness, in his control, in his knowledge, in his sovereignty. Sometimes the Lord, sometimes the Lord alleviates our circumstances, as he did David. And sometimes he doesn't, as, the case, as was the case with Paul. Do you see that? Don't miss that here. David was delivered out of his physical turmoil, but Paul was not. But either way, what do we know to be true? That God was working. God was working in both of their situations, even though the outcomes, one was favorable, one was not. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God is always there either way. He's always encamped around his people. We can find rest in the middle of the circumstance, even without knowing everything, without knowing why. And that's the question we ask God, isn't it? Why? Why, God, is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my loved one? Why are we in this situation now? We want to know the answer to that, but God, through Paul, through David, is teaching us we don't have to know why that particular thing is happening. What we do need to know, though, is the great promise he's given us in Romans 8, 28. And we know. We don't guess. We're not unsure about this. We're not speculating here. No, we know with certainty that for those who love God, not those who love some idea of religion, not those who love some kind of idea of morality, not those who love some kind of God of your figment or your imagination. No, for those who love the creator of all things, the universe who keeps every single molecule in this universe under his power and his control, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, because this is true, because this is true, we cannot, we must not define our lives by our circumstances. They are not out of control, so to speak. They are not out of God's control. We cannot say our life is good or bad based on our difficulties or our trials. We must strive for this this spiritual wisdom, this spiritual maturity, the vision here of David and Paul and taste and see that the Lord is good in all things, always working for his glory, always working ultimately for our good in the end. Which brings us to our second point, the good life. The good life is not defined by our circumstances. What is it defined by? You see, the good life is defined by our experience with God. That's what defines it. In other words, experiencing the joy and the rest that comes 
through walking closely with God in all types of circumstances, that's the good life. That's it. In verses eight through 10 of Psalm 34, look at what David says. He says it this way. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And then he uses an example from nature. Look, the young lions, right? They may suffer, they may suffer in want, and they, they, they may have hunger, but those who seek the Lord are not like an animal cast aside. No, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, it's only when we begin to really believe, believe with that posture of humility that God is present, that he is with us in our trials, that he is with us in our circumstances. It's only when we really believe that that we can mature spiritually, that we can grow in our faith. You see, when you are constantly looking to him with that fear, right, that reverence, that awe, you see his blessings. You have the vision to taste, to see, right, his blessings. You gain wisdom to see his provision in ways that perhaps you didn't before because you were too focused on yourself and looking to fulfill your tastes, your appetites, we can't taste and see the goodness of God if we're constantly trying to taste and see the things of this world. When we don't spend time with God, when we don't learn to enjoy his presence through reading the Bible and studying God's word and listening to him speak to our heart, when we don't spend time in prayer talking to the one who knows us and loves us more than anyone in the world, when we don't spend that quality time with God, our maker, we can't taste, we can't see. We can't learn to enjoy walking with him and experiencing him. We can't, we can't learn to love just simply being and resting in his presence. We develop tunnel vision. We can't see what's truly good for us to the left or to the right because what we do is we begin to mistake wants for needs, don't we? But it's only when we tune our hearts and our thoughts to him that we will taste and see that we truly lack no good thing. That selfish pride, that taste of the world, that leads us to think we, we got to have this. I have to have this or my life will be a failure. I have to taste this. I have to see this or my life will have no meaning. My life will have no purpose. Well, all along, God says, I am your meaning. I am your purpose. David says, taste and see that. If we consume ourselves with chasing after our appetites, we may, like the young lions, suffer want and hunger but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, good thing. We see that the Lord is near us. We see that he is with us. Look what David says in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He says the eyes of the Lord, verse 15, are toward the righteous, toward their cry. These verses tell us that the Lord is near. He's attentive and he's working in your life right now. You see, whatever you're going through, it may be very difficult. It may be very challenging. And I don't want to undermine that at all. But what we need the vision to see, what we must taste and see is that even in the midst of the difficulty, the Lord is working 
He is working. And that's what James says in chapter 1 of his, of his letter. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we ever do that? Why would we count it joy if we know that we're going through a trial? Well, he says, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When everything else in the world is slipping, when things are crumbling around you, don't you want to be the person who is steadfast, who is stable on solid ground? And it's not going to happen again through your tastes and your appetites being fulfilled. It's the testing of our faith that produces that steadfastness. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, Paul said something very similar in Romans 5. Look what he said there. He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not in the suffering itself, but going through it, we can have joy because what? We know, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What are the biblical authors trying to tell us? And these are guys, by the way, who went through extreme hardships. Incredible difficulties in the first century A.D. Paul, James, going through persecution of the likes we will never probably see. They're telling us that the truly good life, the truly good life is experienced when you're walking so close with the Lord that you know, you just know He's there. You just know that he's with you. And you know through prayer and time with him and his word, you know that his promises are true. And so you begin to see the ways that he's transforming your heart and your desires and your character. And you may hate. I mean, let's just be real. You may hate where you are right now in life. You may hate the season that you're in. And that's okay to an extent. Again, God doesn't tell us to just love misery. That's not what he's saying. Even if you hate where you are and you would do anything to change the circumstance you're in, I encourage you today to take some time and sit down with God's word and maybe just maybe open up Psalm 34 and just cry out to God and just say, God, I'm sorry for the tunnel vision that I've had and I'm sorry for just bucking up against you and trying to pull glory down for myself, and trying to have control, and trying to have all the knowledge in this situation. Lord, I cry out to you, and I seek you like David did, and I just want to admit, God, that I don't know, but I trust you, and I know that you work all things together for good for me. So show me how you're shaping my heart. Show me how you're changing my mind and the way I think about things in a a more healthy manner. Show me. Show me, Lord, how you are changing me and making me able to endure to have godly character that produces hope. This is how we see. This is how we taste. That's the good life. The good life is defined by your experience with God. And he's always there. But are you tasting? Are you seeing? The good life, number three. And lastly, 
is also knowing that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Now, maybe you've heard from a TV preacher that your best life is now. That's not what David says. Look at Psalm 34, verse 19. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Wait, what? Did we read over that too quickly? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David says, no, it's not going to be an easy-peasy life for the Christian. For For the person of God, it's not going to be a nice, comfortable, luxurious life where you have it all neatly planned out to your retirement and beyond and it all just works out perfectly for you because, well, you know, you belong to God. That's not it. David says, no, actually, it's probably going to be the opposite because many are the afflictions of the righteous, but what? The Lord delivers them him out of them all. How is that? Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That seems a little perhaps random, out of place. David says, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So what is he saying here? So so to understand, let's break this down. To understand verse 19, the afflictions that the righteous will incur, we must understand what we've already discussed in Romans 8, 28, right? That the Lord is truly working all things together for good. This also reminds us that living, living a life for the Lord Right, Living a righteous life, a godly life, guess what? That is going against the grain of humanity. That is, by all means, in all ways, going against the flow of our culture, of our society. So think about it. If you're really going to follow Jesus in the year 2023 in Jacksonville, Florida, do you not think that you're going to have to make some sacrifices Do you not think that you're going to probably have to make some decisions that don't coincide with the way the world tells you to go? Of course we're going to have to. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ in the year 2023, we are going to have to make some sacrifices. We are going to have to make some choices that are going to lead us down a hard path that follows him and not the world. But we understand in the midst of those afflictions, the Lord is truly working all things together for good. You see, no one knew this better than Jesus Christ himself. That the afflictions of the world would come upon those who seek the will of God. Jesus knew the greatest affliction. And in the midst of him knowing the greatest affliction of taking our sin on himself, look back at verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 20. All his bones were left intact. Not one of them was broken. What was David talking about? Look at John 19. This was read during our service earlier. Since since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. In other words, they're trying to expedite the process of death for those on the side of Jesus crucified next to him. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. What David spoke centuries before, not one of his bones will be broken. In the context of Psalm 34, how can we look at the cross? How can we look at the cross and not see the amazing hand of God the Father at work bringing all things together for good? Would we say in our right minds, would we ever say that an instrument of torture in the Roman Empire would somehow bring good to all humanity? You see, at the cross, we see how this is all possible. At the cross is where we must look to see how God is working in your life. Because the cross is the greatest display of the sovereignty of God. We see the goodness of God simultaneously alongside the wrath of God. We see the evil of humans being poured out on Jesus, while at the same time the grace of God is being poured out to us. If God can orchestrate that, if he can bring that act of evil, yet that act of grace together at the same time to produce the greatest fruit you will ever see in humanity, the salvation of Jesus Christ to us through his blood, through his death, dying in our place for our sin. If God can orchestrate that for all of humanity through his son, how can he not orchestrate what you're going through right now for good. He can move in your life in ways you may never realize until you get to heaven. You know, I believe that to be true often. I don't think we're going to find out answers all the time, even years later. We may learn some general principles and lessons of how to, how to deal with suffering, how to deal with tragedy. But there's answers that you may never know on this side of eternity. And they may bug you, they may bother you, but you can rest and know that God is moving in your life in ways that you may not understand, knowing that this great truth of the cross is true for your life. If you've turned your life to Jesus, it assures us that the afflictions themselves will not, cannot slay us. They cannot condemn us because we are safe. Do you see that? We are safe in the one who took our greatest affliction, our sin, our penalty, our debt to God, our sin against Him, Jesus took that affliction and removed it by paying the penalty for it through His death so it wouldn't slay us. That's why we can sing with David. Verse 22, the last verse of his song. That's why we can sing with him. The Lord redeems the life of of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's the good life. Amen? That's it. The best is yet to come. The best life is the one we're looking forward where there is no final condemnation. There is only freedom and joy in eternity and we get to experience God forever. 
See, if you have turned to Jesus to be your true, your true Savior and Lord, then you have been forgiven of your sins because of his payment for them in your place. So guess what? That means your future is secure. Your future is secure. But we're going to have to battle in this life with sin, with ongoing struggles, but because of our secure salvation in Christ, we know the best is yet to come, so we wait. We struggle. We fight. We hope. We live with courage. We live with hope. We live the good life as we await the best one to come. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. All things, can you say that? All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Amen. So what about you today? Are you living the good life? Is that what you would say? Is that how you would describe your life? Are you living the good life in the context of what we've learned today in Psalm 34? Are you tasting? Are you seeing? Not the goodness of your circumstances, whether they're good or bad. Not developing that tunnel vision, chasing after your own appetites, wants, desires, pride. No, are you tasting and seeing that God is working in your heart? He loves you. He loves you more than you love yourself. And that's a lot, right? (laughs) But he does. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We know each week throughout our psalm series, we've ended the service in a little different way with a song at the end that correlates to the message. Kyle and Emily have come out every week and sung a song for us. Well, today we're going to do that again, but but we're going to do that with... Uh, some very special guests are going to sing a song for us today. Uh, some of our preschoolers are actually going to come out and they're going to sing for us today some of the scripture, guess what, from Psalm 34 and from Romans 8, 28. So I thought, you know what, this is a neat opportunity. Why don't we have them come out? Y'all come on, guys. <laughs> They've been working really hard learning Psalm 34 and Romans 8, 28, and they want to sing that, those verses. They want to sing those verses to you guys. So my encouragement to you is as they sing this morning, would you let that speak to your heart? Would you, through the, through the mouths of these children, would you taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you pray with me as they prepare to sing? Lord Jesus, we... We thank you that we get to celebrate who you are every day of our lives. Lord, may we taste and see that you are good. You are good. Lord, may we see how you are interacting in our lives every day. Even if we don't have all the answers, if we don't understand why, Lord, with childlike faith, with childlike faith, would you give us hearts to trust you, minds that trust your goodness our Heavenly Father. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Like no good. 